Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fire Science Show. Welcome to the year 2024. I hope you will have a brilliant year and uh, the podcast will be an important part of, of that year. For the first episode of this year, I hopefully have a real banger. I have once again invited Professor David Purser, this uh, last year's recipient of Howard Emmons Award from the FSS for his lifetime achievements. And Professor Purser was here already multiple times. We have been discussing how he has revolutionized the field of toxicology and toxicity in fires and our understanding on uh, how smoke affects human beings and how do we measure smoke. In today's episode, I wanted to reach to the other side of his career, where he has also kind of revolutionized how we consider the timeline of fires and how we consider the evacuation processes. For most of the fire engineers, considering evacuation processes in fire is a very simple thing. You calculate the available safe evacuation time, you calculate the required safe evacuation time, and you got it. But uh, if you think about it, it was not known for the all the history of fire science, and it had to be invented at some point. And Professor Purser had significant contributions in establishing this and also establishing in, in stuff that we know as, as the evacuation timeline, the plot in British Standard that everyone knows that's the cover of this episode. It's something that, that uh, David has participated in creating. And uh, I'm super thrilled to have him in the show discussing how this came to life. It was supposed to be a simple interview episode, but I've kind of upgraded it into uh, the fundamentals of fire science, because that's the purpose of the series. You learn the fundamentals from the most knowledgeable people in the world of fire science. And I would doubt that there's anyone more knowledgeable about the stuff that we're talking about today than uh, David Purser. So I guess that that's enough. Uh, and I hope you join me and David in this very interesting conversation on the safety equation. So let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski and I will be your host. Fire Science Show is brought to you in collaboration with OFR Consultants, a multi-award-winning independent consultancy dedicated to addressing fire safety challenges. OFR is the UK's leading fire risk consultancy. Its globally established team has developed a reputation for preeminent fire engineering expertise with colleagues working across the world to help protect people, property and the environment. After one year of working together with OFR to deliver this podcast to you, we have extended our collaboration for the entire year 2024, and we are very happy to deliver this hopefully useful uh, and interesting content on all ends of fire science to you. Just like in the previous year, over the course of the year, you will also learn about some of the OFR's projects, involvements, and opportunities that are related to their company. An exciting year for all to come, and on behalf of myself and OFR, we are wishing you all the best for the 2024. And now let's have a great start into the year with this interview with David Purser. Hello, everybody. I'm here today, once again, joined by Professor David Purser. Hello, David. Great to have you back in the show. Hi there. 
I hope you had a great time in, in Japan where you were receiving your award, big career awards for your research. And I would love to follow up. We've done so many episodes already on smoke toxicity and how smoke affects people, how fires produce smoke, how uh, we can measure that with devices and all the chemistry that's behind that. One thing we have not covered yet is the other end, you know, of the fire safety, which is the, the human part in the engineering. And I also know that you have been very involved in, in the research related to the evacuation processes. So first to give a little structure to our discussion, we often build fire safety within a framework of available and require safe evacuation times, ACET, RSET. So let's try and introduce the listeners to the concept so we're on the same page and then we will go into details of what goes into um, the human part of the equation. Yeah, okay. So I think of ultimately all survival in fires is all time-based, they're time-based processes. And there are two parallel processes going on in any fire incident. One of them is the available safe escape time, which is the basically the fire growth pattern. So at a certain time, a fire ignites. It takes a certain time when it's growing slowly and possibly in the enclosure of origin. And then typically you get a phase when it spreads very quickly. And at a certain period of time, the conditions become untenable in various spaces within the building, built environment. And so we need to do calculations, as we spoke about last time we talked, about how long you've got from the ignition of the fire to when the conditions in the occupied spaces and escape routes become untenable, because that's the point at which people who were trying to evacuate or trying to shelter in the fire would become incapacitated. And once they're incapacitated, they're likely to die. So, so we need to make sure everybody's in a safe place or out of the building before we get to that limit of ASAP. But in parallel with that timeline, we've got the, what the occupants are doing, what people are doing. And mm -hmm. during the uh, 90s and 2000s, early 2000s, I did a lot of work to try and characterize this and quantify it in a way that engineers could put into calculations. So colleagues like Jonathan Syme, who had done a lot of work on, who was more of a sociologist and psychologist, he'd done a lot of work on human behavior. And he kind of opened our eyes as engineers to the fact that human behavior was an important and complicated component of escape time. It wasn't just the physical time it took to run through the escape route. You had mm -hmm. to understand what people were doing and why they were doing it. And I kind of picked up on that and I said, okay, how can we put that in a way that we can actually quantify it for engineering calculations? And to do that, what I came up with was a concept to design behavioral scenarios. You know, that if you look at what happened to people in any one type of building or, or case, you find they went through a series of stages between the time that the fire ignited so the, the common starting point for our set, and they said, is ignition time for right? It's very important. Mm -hmm. and, and then the various things they were doing. And I came up with this kind of diagram, which you find in the British Standard on BS7974 PD6, which I commend you to have a look at. And it's been published in a few papers as well, where we broke down the escape process into stages. And so it's fairly straightforward, obvious thing. So the, the first stage is the time from ignition to when the fire is detected. Now, we normally think of a simple process where the fire is detected, a small fire is picked up by some automatic detection system, and then immediately a loud alarm spreads throughout the building, everybody runs out. But when we look at real scenarios, 
uh, we find it's not really as simple as that, that often uh, a fire will start and it probably will be uh, picked up quite early, either by a person or by some kind of detection system. But then there's a period of time before that information is spread to the rest of the occupant population who are affected. And in a, situ- a common situation, as I think is very important, is in sort of large, what I might call public buildings, where the occupants are not, not sleeping accommodation. Where if, or often, if there's a detection event by an automatic system, that information will be spread to uh, somebody in security who will then have to take some other subsequent action or not. And what we often find in, particularly when things go wrong, is that although somebody becomes aware of a fire at a very early stage, then the delays creep in while they go to check what's going on, various behaviours are engaged in by those individuals. Mm -hmm. None of the none of the regular occupants yet know there's a fire, but security might send someone to go and have a look, and then they might report to their boss, who then phones his boss, who then has to make a decision, go and have another look, see if it's really a detection. So you get a kind of a multiple detection loop going on. I would second that based on my experience in engineering buildings and the running experiments in buildings. There are like technical aspects to that because you have some delay times built into your detection. You want to minimize the false alarms in your building. So you cannot just immediately evacuate everyone the moment a sensor sounds in your building. You have to confirm that it's a real threat. So usually that takes time. Um, there are human components to that. As you mentioned, someone may need to seek approval for launching evacuation of a large building or stopping the whatever production is happening. Imagine fire in an uh, iron mill. You cannot just shut down the iron mill with a button because there was a fire in it, right? So this time can range from almost immediate, like the moment the fire happened, it's detected. It can be an awfully long time when multiple levels get into that. And at the same time, the timeline of our asset, the fire is growing usually in an exponential manner. So it started as, as a tiny fire. It could be a few hundred kilowatts by now. It can be a few megawatts by now. It can be approaching even flashover by now if you have a small compartment and uh, a large amount of plastic material in that compartment. So it's the time zero before people know that there's a fire and the time where we start our analysis are two different points in time, right? Absolutely, yeah, that's right. And I mean, I, I talk about this sort of golden period when... Usually after some ignition, uh, things are progressing quite slowly at first. Mm. And there's plenty of time to take action if it's taken early. I mean, I think it's human nature. We always underestimate threats, potential threats that become serious at an early stage. You can see it in the response to COVID. You can, you know, all these kind of things. Mm. And of course, I appreciate this dilemma that people find themselves in. And this depends very much on the type of occupancy. But if you think of a classic thing like an airport, you get a, a report of a small fire in the baggage area. Are well, you going to immediately evacuate that airport, keep all those planes in the sky that are coming and going? It's a big decision to make. So obviously the management on the scene are reluctant to make a big disruption unless they really have to. But we have to find some way of factoring these issues into our design and assessment processes. We have to, and I think, I think we need to really review these things and look at, well, exactly how should we be responding in these situations? And I think it's very important that the fire safety management 
the active on-site fire safety management should practice different scenarios mm-hmm. up to the point where they would evacuate. Not necessarily involving an evacuation, but, you know, you, you should say, here you are, you get all your crew in, they're all there, and suddenly you have a false fire in a certain area. And then you say to them, okay, some a detector's gone off, what are you going to do? And then three or four minutes later, you say, oh, okay, now it's a megawatt. What are you going to do now? What have you done up to this point? And how do we balance these conflicting things? Obviously, you don't want to evacuate a building for a very small instant, like a piece of toast going off in the restaurant. You need to have some way of getting there. But on the other hand, what I see when I look at incidents, now, of course, the incidents I'm looking at are all ones that have gone badly wrong. So it's a subset of the total set of incidents many which may have ended up as a trivial result. But when the serious things do happen and you get multiple deaths, you can always see, nearly always see, there's been this Mm -hmm. chapter of early detection and then subsequent delays before a warning has been given to the people who are mostly affected, the occupants. And, you know, I gave a few examples in my talk in Tokyo about Dusseldorf Airport and the Channel Tunnel and the Mont Blanc Tunnel, a few transport-related ones. But we've also had quite a few building-related ones, Bradford Stadium, Marks and Spencer's department store. There are lots of, there's a common theme to these things. Yeah, fantastic. Well, Golder, I'd just like to close one thing. Uh, So let's at least briefly mention what's in the uh, 7976.6. What are the parts of the time? We have briefly covered the detection time, but there are other components to the time. So let's just mention what the other components are, and then we can come back to discussing them. I want to do that anyway, but we've got sidetracked. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So the first thing you've got is detection. So how long will detection be before some yeah. kind of alarm is, is given to somebody? And then you've got what I call alarm time or warning time, which is once, once a person could be somebody in security has detected the fire, how long will it be before a general evacuation warning is, is given to the affected occupants. Now, this may not be everybody in a building, but affected parts of the building mm-hmm. or the whole building. So that's the warning time. Now, everybody's been warned. Now we get into pre-travel time or pre-movement time. So when I did a lot of this work in the 80s and 90s, we realized that there was no real data for covering this kind of behavior, pre-travel time. So we tried to do different experiments. These are experiments in different types of occupancies where we bugged the place with cameras and then sounded the alarms unannounced. And we looked at how people behave. And so we, we tried mm-hmm. to measure the pre-travel time distributions for occupied spaces for different types of occupants with different types of characteristics. So we, we, my plan here was, because it's something you can't calculate from any kind of theoretical basis, you can't calculate how long someone's going to take to respond all you can do is set up a case and observe it, collect the data. So I was very keen that we should try to assemble for the engineering community a database of pre-travel times in occupancies defined in terms of, in terms of the main characteristics that affected those pre-travel times. Okay, we can talk about that in a minute. So we'll get your pre-travel time mm-hmm. distribution. Then once people have, so if you say you've got 50 people in, a, in an occupied space and you sound a warning, then there's a sort of pattern that follows. First of all, nothing happens. Everybody carries on doing what they were doing to start with for a certain period of time, which is variable depending on the situation. And then individuals, one by one, will realize there's something serious going on. They've got to stop what they were doing and they've got to do something else. They've got to, they've got to react to this emergency situation. 
So then they go into a new kind of behavior, but they don't hit the exit. What they go into then is their response time. And in the response behaviors, what they do is the sort of typical things like collecting the kids, um, you know, looking for belongings, wayfinding and looking for information and thinking about what have I got to do? And then once they've gone through that phase, they think, I've got to get out. I'm going to an exit, the exit that I'm going now, and then they go into their travel phase. So those are the sorts of phases and behaviors involved in pre-travel time, which we've now got quite a good database of, and I refer to that in my talk. And so you find it in the handbook and various publications. So that's, mm-hmm. we, could, we need a lot more, but it's coming on. Then uh, people go into the travel phase. Now, once they get into the travel phase, we develop cellular automaton models and things, and there are a number of these around, but we developed our own in-house model called GridFlow where we looked at the relationship between distributions of pre-travel times and travel times for various types of occupancies, single occupancies and multiple occupancies like blocks, multi-story blocks and this kind Mm -hmm. of thing. And basically what we found was that the time it takes to empty a space uh, is bounded by two kind of sets. Mm -hmm. So if you have a crowded space then the time to empty any crowded space is limited by the time it takes the first few people to start to move. So like the first percentile who start to head to the exits. So it's the pre-travel time of the first percentile. And then it's, they form the queues at the exits. And then the rest of the time is a simple flow calculation depending on the exit width, aggregate exit width, and the number of occupants having to get through that exit. At, at that point, the response of individual people in that venue does not matter that much because they eventually all would be moving towards the exit and they would enter the queue. And exactly. the time is just uh, the, the amount, how, how quickly the queue can... Uh... Get through the exits. Yeah, that's right. Now, the, the, other, the other sort of bounded situation is where you've got the same space, but it's sparsely occupied. And then there's no queuing. So the time then depends on the pre-travel time of the people to move. And, and there's also another little fact there, which is their walking time to the exit, but that's a small component usually, very small. Mm-hmm. The actual travel distance is not very important. It's the time before they start to move and then whether or not there's a queue at the exit. So in the sparsely occupied case, what we find is that people, uh, it all depends on the last few people to decide to move. And what we also found was that you almost always have a log normal distribution of starting times in any occupied space. So what you need to know is when will the sort of 99th percentile group decide to start to move because they will be the the one, the last ones to go to an exit. So when they reach the exit, no one is there because there was no queue? Exactly. They just walk through. It doesn't matter. In the end, they could be the only person in the building and they decided like, the last person to decide that to evacuate is the one that's going to give you the, the maximum value of assets that are required to yeah. save evacuation and time. So because... You might want to allow for that, but there is a bit of a distinction because if you think about the crowded case, then there's a physical yep. limitation on the time it takes to clear that space. Yeah. yeah. Whereas with the sparsely occupied space, these occupants always have what I might, what I call the means to escape. In other words, if they walk to a door, there's nobody stopping them going through it. They just walk through it. So if conditions start to deteriorate in the sparsely occupied space, people should have a better opportunity to escape. The big problem arises when you get rapid deterioration of conditions in a crowded space, think station nightclub, when you have a huge number of people trying to get through limited exit capacity in a very short time available for them to do it. Mm-hmm. The station club was a classic. I calculated for that, that 
it was about 90 seconds from ignition to loss of tenability. And in fact, it's interesting because the occupants from the videos that we had started to evacuate that space before the alarm went off. And the alarm went off in a timely manner. So their pre-evacuation distribution, everything was... Uh... Well, it was pretty good, pretty good. Not, not too bad. But, but what was the big problem was there was totally inadequate flow capacity in the exits for the people who had to try and get through it. And what happened at the station nightclub was that they actually kind of created their own exits by smashing the windows. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if they hadn't smashed the windows and just relied on the, on the physical exit provision, there would have been more deaths there than there actually were in these. So this combination of pre-travel times and exit flow capacity are very important in, in emptying a, a large occupied space. Then if you get to the um, final stage of evacuation, then you've got where you have multiple streams of people converging, for example, coming off different floors into a stair. Mm-hmm. And then you've got to obviously think about the congestion in the stair and the flow capacity of the stair. It's, you can do fairly simple calculations on this, but that's where the models come in very handily because it's quite complicated to look at all mm-hmm. the relationships between them. So those are the different stages. We've got the, the detection stage, the warning stage, the pre-travel stage, and then the travel stage. And they're all basically additive. And so in order to compare ASET with RSET, and if you're doing a proper analysis for your case, it's very important that you address each of these parameters in the RSET timeline adequately mm-hmm. in your design calculation or whatever you're doing. Fantastic. Uh, I, I mean, everyone knows your <laughs> diagram, by the way. It doesn't have to be introduced. Everyone is using that that diagram. And if you don't know which diagram we're talking oh, you know very well which diagram we're talking <laughs> about. I just have to point it out to you. You, you. you will see back then. I'll make it a cover of the episode so you know. Anyway, as you said, a lot of psychological, physiological things that happen with humans, how they move, how, how they act, that, that has to go into some sort of engineering assumption. Because today I have to engineer my building. The, this approach is often uh, criticized because it doesn't reflect reality. But I don't think in many models in fire safety engineering reflect reality. It's not the point. The point is to have a useful model to allow us engineer buildings at a decent level of safety, not to be a realistic reflection of what real fires are. When you were creating this framework, and we did not just create the framework, in the published document, there are times attached to those assumptions based on occupancy. How did you figure out what is appropriate time for a hotel for a simple occupancy, multi-dwelling? <laughs> like, yeah, th- th- this sounds quite difficult. No, right. and, and there's there's a big responsibility in those numbers because they are used by people to to craft buildings. Yeah, so they were put in to some extent as examples, and and there were lots of caveats in there to say, really, as an engineer, if you're doing a specific building, you want to try and obtain. That table particularly is to do with pre-travel time distributions. And in that table that you're referring to, I put in estimates of first percentile and sort of 99th percentile pre-travel times. And the idea is that you would use those numbers or distributions related to them together with the travel distributions to work out the times you'd expect to clear those spaces. And what those were based upon was at the time, uh, but hopefully better now, a limited number of these experiments where we went to different types of occupancies 
we put cameras up and we, we evacuated them with, with no warning. That was the whole point. So we could measure people's reaction times. Now, obviously, when you do that, there's quite a time. It's one thing to do an evacuation drill where everybody knows the bell goes off and you get out, which many buildings do. But it's quite a different thing, particularly in those days when cameras and things weren't so good, to measure reaction times of people. It's a lot of work to set those up. So it's based on a smallish number that we had at the time. Mm -hmm. And of course, the ones that are easy to do are things like university classrooms and occupants or offices and things like that, because you can really find a tame population to test. But we did manage to do, I mean, if we did one evacuation where we evacuated a hospital outpatient department, for example. So that one source of data is where we actually set up to measure these. We did, we did a lot of work with the University of Ulster, where we did some department stores. And I also looked at data from real incidents. And what I really wanted, the gold standard I wanted, was where have we got CCTV of actual incidents showing the whole process? But at the time, they were very, very rare. You know, there weren't many of them. There's more of them around now. So it was a limited, a limited database. But one of the things I was particularly concerned about was what are the main qualitative variables that we can identify that have a big quantitative effect on, on people's behavior? Mm -hmm. And so we came up, I came up with this kind of, um, plan uh, that we would have something called a design behavioral scenario, which is a bit like a design fire scenario. Well, I think there's quite a good parallel because if you think of a design fire scenario, you come up with a sort of set of fires that you expect might happen in a certain occupancy, but you know they're sort of semi-theoretical, that there's so many variables involved, you can't actually predict with detail how a fire will go. And this is something analogous to this, but you can get some kind of feel for what you might be likely to get. So what we came up with was this plan, and we defined these scenarios not in terms of the building itself, but in terms of the nature of the occupants, right? And so the first category uh, was buildings where people are awake. So are they awake or are they asleep? That's a big, that's a big distinction. So awake, people are awake, and they're familiar with the building. So mm -hmm. what that scenario number one, scenario A, type A. And type B is, People are awake, but they're unfamiliar with the building. So type A would be something like an office or a factory or warehouse or something like that, where you just got the employees. Now, what are the characteristics of that kind of a scenario? Well, often people are scattered amongst multi multiple enclosures, like in a big office building. So that's a bit of a challenge for how you manage and understand how they will react to that. But uh, they one characteristic they generally have is the density of people is quite low in an office. Mm -hmm. Okay. And therefore, going back to the travel side of things, queuing at the exits is unlikely to be a serious issue in that kind of a scenario set. So what you're really focusing on then is warnings and getting people to start to move their pre-travel time aspects. Now, how do you quantify those? Well, you can measure them, in, but then uh, you have to define the things that are affecting the thing you're measuring it. So I then say, well, what the main things that determine how people respond in those sort of situations are the extent to which they're familiar with the building and its systems, mm -hmm. how well trained they are, how well managed they are, and what kind of alarm system they have, warning system. So are they, okay, their familiarity? We're only looking at the pre-travel time now. So we're assuming some kind of warning has been given. 
We want to make some sort of estimate on how long it's going to be before they're going to respond to that warning and start to mm. leave the building. And so uh, what we find is that if they're well-trained, if they're familiar with the place and you have a good culture, you only need a sounder because they know what the alarm system is. The louder it is, the better. And then you can get very good compliance and you can get very short free travel times. If, on the other hand, you have that same basic scenario, but people are the quality of the management, the fire safety management is poor. You don't have regular drills. You don't insist. You don't have floor wardens. You don't have people who are compliant and used to re- responding well. Then we can find that these times can get extended. Or if you have people there who have been unfamiliar with the building and, and, have, and don't know the systems. And we have a limited database, very limited database, but we do have some examples of long pre-travel times where people didn't um, react to the alarms because they didn't really believe they were serious or things like that. But I, for example, we had a big database from our own institute, BRE, with lots mm-hmm. of buildings in there, not people working in fire, people working all sorts of building-related things. And we had regular drills and we had a database of those. And I, I, I plotted that database and I found that basically everybody was out in the building within a couple of minutes in every case because we had a good culture. So you could show that you could get good compliance in those situations, but sometimes you could get bad compliance. So that gave you a kind of feel for what you could expect in, a, in that kind of occupancy. The next one is awake and unfamiliar. And this is basically things like uh, shops, stores, okay. things like that. And the thing about that is you might, you like to have fewer spaces. If you think of a department store or something, it's usually a few fairly large enclosures but, or an assembly space, perhaps in a hotel, or then the, one of the distinctions there is people aren't familiar with the systems. So when you sound the alarm, you don't know what they're going to do, but we'll come back to that. The other thing is they're likely, quite often going to be high density occupants. You think of a shop at Christmas coming up soon or something like that, you could get a high density of people. Mm-hmm. And so there are going to be situations where, uh, with a nightclub we spoke of earlier, for example, then you, you're going to get situations where you've got to get people out quickly and you have to be very careful then about your travel time exit capacity because it could have a big influence on the time. But you've also got to consider your pre-travel time. And what we find in those kinds of uh, occupancies is that if you have people who are a good management culture, and some of the examples that we did experimentally were like this, where you had well-trained staff and when I talk about management, I'm not, I'm not just talking about the management of the building and its systems all the time. I'm talking about the active management during an incident. This is what's so important. Mm. So you have an incident, you have your staff trained, and you train them to immediately sweep people out. And there's quite a, some nice examples of this. The first one, experimentally, was Ghislaine Pruel's work in the Tyne and Weir Metro that she did for her PhD where they found that if they put it, made an alarm, just an alarm signal on the platform, you know, people were very slow to respond. If they had a voice alarm system in the platform, they got a better response, but they had much, much better response when the voice alarm was backed up by a sweep of the staff in uniform saying, get out, get off, we've got to leave. And so by looking at these sort of scenarios, you can see that if you have all these things in place with the management perspective, you can get a rapid and efficient and a short pre-movement time distribution. If you don't have those, you just have some kind of buzzer going off or alarm going off, then you're going to find that you're going to get a much 
the longer priest distribution. So this was the basis that I, I sort of started to put together this guidance. But there, were a lot, there was a big caveat there to say, you know, there's some of these scenarios, we don't have very good databases mm -hmm. and we need to get better databases. And if you're a designer, think about these issues and come up with, uh, if you're a performance-based designer, what database do you have? Supposing you're designing a store for a chain who have 300 other stores and you're doing number 301, then you should say to them, okay, what kind of response do you get when you have evacuations for mm. your other 300 stores? We can use that as a basis for our calculations, you know? So that's the kind of approach I was taking. But a lot of those information would come from um, non-fire drills or unannounced fire drills. So as real as it can be, but no fire component to those. In the real fires, you will also have some visible cues of the fire happening in the building. You can see the smoke, you can perhaps see the flames, you can see the fire trucks outside of your building. So that you can get more cues than just the alarm. Does this impact the pre-evacuation time? Does it shorten it, longer it? Yeah, that's right. So what we're talking about is, years ago, we used to talk about alarms. And then the behaviorists, we started to say, well, well, it's not alarms, it's different sorts of cues, of which an alarm is one of the cues that you might get. And I think here we want to distinguish a little bit between maybe some of these sort of public building type situations and on the residential side, which we haven't spoken about yet. But mm -hmm. I think if you think of a fire in an office, multi-story office building, or maybe in one uh, room in a multi-complex theater complex, cinema complex or something like that, I think it's reasonable to estimate that most of the people in many of the enclosures within that space during the early stages of the fire may not have any other cues other than the alarm if it, if it sounded for them. Mm -hmm. So it's reasonable in a design context to assume that people only, the only cue they have is the alarm system or the management intervention. And that most people in real, in many real scenarios, that will be their only immediate mm -hmm. situation. If you get to a point where in those kind of scenarios, the airports, the theaters and things like that, where people are, are seeing something, other than the occupied, if, if the fire starts in an occupied enclosure, of course, then you do get these things immediately. Uh, then it's been too long. <laughs> You've already gone past the point where you should have done something. But I mean, okay, Station Night Club is a good example where mm. the people were, were responding to the cue of the rapidly growing flames on the stage and the, and the ceiling jet, you know, before the, uh, the alarm went off. I thought that was quite interesting the telling in that particular case. The I, big problem we had in that, and we're doing, and I think there's another issue here, which is that in, in some of these occupied spaces, we're getting these very, very rapid fire growth curves, mm -hmm. um, particularly in these kind of nightclubs. And there's been a lot, a lot of them all over the world, particularly in Europe over the last few years. We seem to keep repeating this problem mm -hmm. where we're getting rapidly growing fires. But when you think of the longer going fire, particularly, and Grenfell was a good example of this, yes, then people are influenced by a whole range of cues. In their, in their domestic situation as well, you know, you might smell something. And I, I did talk about this in the, my lecture, that the main reason, for example, at Grenfell, that many people in the flat six, which is the flat column of flats that were first affected, how did they become aware of the fire? Well, actually, 
In most cases, it was because the kitchen or hallway smoke or heat detector went off. But quite a proportion of them, it was because they smelt smoke or they heard a sound or one person said she saw the reflection of the flames on the Mm -hmm. windows of the school on the other side of the courtyard. You know, the flames were reflected off another building. So there were a whole range of cues. And the people who were in the other flats who were slower to uh, become aware and be affected, they were picking up on all these kind of different cues. And a big source of these cues was, in fact, them being called up by relatives who were outside the tower or another place and this kind of thing. Grantsville is a very like direct example that just knowing that there is a fire is not enough for you to evacuate because these people had conflicting information from even from authorities that telling them to stay stay put in in their buildings calling fire service and being told that you're supposed to stay in your in your flat so at this point it's it's very obvious there is a fire in your building you are absolutely unaware of the severity of the situation you just know that the fire is there and your decision of evacuation now is not just the knowledge that the fire exists and that it is in your building in fact but you get a much bigger amount of conflicting information if I could, like, uh, before we go into the Grenfell, because it's, it's a very interesting case study, and, and many that you mentioned before, Mont Blanc and other fires, I think it would be great to go through them individually. So, so if we are in a scenario where people would receive the information about the fire from some sort of automated system that delivers the warning to them, and the fire is not there, and they evacuate, and it happens multiple times, how that affects their ability to evacuate when the fire happens. I'm simply talking about the issue of false alarm in the buildings and to what extent the false alarms may underpin the entire safety strategy of a building. It's very interesting to me. Yeah, no, it's a question people always ask me. And uh, I I don't have any kind of quantified study of this. All I can say is that I think we, make, we need to make a big distinction between dwellings and other kinds of buildings. Okay. Um, but nearly all the research we've ever done is on what we call kind of public buildings, buildings where there is an alarm system affecting the whole building and an evacuation strategy and 24-hour on-site fire safety management. So all the mm-hmm. sort of things, talking about shops, airports, whatever, transport. So in those sort of situations, uh, we used to get pretty good compliance. There, there, you would have regular drills, expect to have regular drills. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then people talk about what's, what's a reasonable frequency of evacuations. And I would say once or twice a year is reasonable. But generally, people will tolerate that and you get pretty good compliance in most cases. There are examples like, like, I mean, I think the sort of case that people bring up is student halls of residence, where the students are always setting, setting the alarms off. And you might, or hostels and things, they're, they're, it's a bit more challenging to get good compliance. But I think the way around that is to insist on good compliance and have a good management there. You know, you need a good management. Well, so if you have floor wardens who, somebody who, a volunteer, they're not necessarily anybody who's paid to do this. They're somebody who's responsible, who will take on responsibility in case of an incident, getting everybody moving. That's very, uh, very effective. And you can, you can get around these kind of problems. Obviously, if you have an alarm system that's going off for a while, then you have this kind of cry wolf problem 
possibly turning up, then you need to address the system in, in place. But generally speaking, I think you can get good compliance if you approach it the right way. It's almost like an enforcement almost of the evacuation. Because if you have uh, wardens that are responsible for evacuation, that means they're obligated to have everyone ob- obliged with the commands. So, so they kind of enforce the evacuation on people because they know they will be uh, compliant if the evacuation does not happen, right? They failed their job. Yeah. So, so you, you're almost, and, and in this case, perhaps the role of the false alarm is lesser because every time an alarm sounds, that person is enforcing others to follow. And in, in dwelling systems, do, do you... Dwelling is completely different. Yeah, so, okay. Yeah, I, mean, I think let's talk about dwellings. I mean, is this what I brought up to do with Grenfell, really? But the big problem with dwellings, and we, we don't study dwellings that much because there's no alarm system. There's no requirement for evacuations from dwellings mm-hmm. under control. And so nearly all the funding and all the research that's been done, when I, when I look back on it, was on what I might call loosely public buildings, you know? The thing about, mm-hmm. uh, certainly in the UK, and I think it's probably pretty well the same worldwide, is that apart from things like certain student flats and places like that, where they do have alarm systems, and we can get some data from those, majority of dwellings, the requirement in the UK is that you have, for all buildings, all occupied spaces, that you have to have some system of detection and early warning of fire a means of escape capable of being safely and effectively used at all material times. That's the performance-based mission statement for any building in the UK, right? The way that's addressed in something like a blocks of flats is that each flat is required to have a detection and alarm system, you know, a smoke alarm, in other words. And you have to make sure that the means of escape from that flat are adequate. So you don't you don't normally have the kitchen cooker near the front door, you know, this kind of stuff. And that's really all. But once you get out the flat, you then have to be in a sterile communal space, which is protected, fully protected, and leading to a protected stair, if it's a multi-story building, which gives you, leads you to the final exit. So the concept is if there's a fire in your flat, you should be warned. You should be able to escape quickly into the communal space the fire door of your front door st- shuts behind you. And so, so the communal space remains pretty well smoke-free, maybe with a bit of extraction or ventilation. And you then go through another fire door into a totally protected stair and you can get out. All your neighbours should be able to, is, should not normally need to escape. That's the assumption because you have fire-resistant mm-hmm. construct of the flat and all the other spaces. So the concept is that if there's a fire in any one flat, it will be confined to that flat, both the smoke and the mm-hmm. flame. Therefore, in nearly all cases, and this is pretty well true in most cases, you won't need anybody else to get out. If your neighbours do get out, they should be able to go through a fairly sterile common lobby to the stair to get out. Well, multi-layers, so eventually the communal space could be in some extent smoke-lodged, but then the... Protected stairs should not be at all, right? You, yeah. you... But the bottom line is that the assumption is that nearly everybody else, apart from those in the first affected flat, would not normally need to escape. If they mm. do decide they need to escape, they should always have a clear escape route out. That's the concept. That's the kind of platonic ideal of, of how a block of flats works. You know, because the pr- in practice, it doesn't always work like that. 
And uh, I've come across a number of cases over the years where somebody has a fire occurred in one flat and uh, the occupants have escaped. They've left the front door of their flat open. The communal space has become contaminated. And occupants in other flats, there have been deaths in other flats. It's not, it's not a completely unknown phenomenon. Um, usually it's ones and twos. So it was not even the fire spread to, to surrounding compartments. It was just the doors being open. Uh, well, and, I'm thinking and, of one particular, well, again, there's no systematic study of this, but one particular case I'm thinking of some years ago was drawn to my attention just as an individual case. I remember the story was that there was a fire in this, it was a, about, about a four or five story block. And mm-hmm. they're, they're on the top floor, you know, somewhere up the tower, not tower, up, up, you know, on an upper floor. And a fire occurred in this flat and the occupants did run out. And for some reason, the front door didn't shut behind them and seal the flat. It was quite a big fire in that flat. The occupants of the flat next door decided to stay there because they thought that's what they were supposed to do, remain in place, you know, which is the default situation. And they did so, but then the fire in the flat next door to them spread out the windows and started to come in, break into their flat. The smoke came into their flat. And when they tried to escape, by this time, the common lobby was very badly smoke-locked. So they were trapped in the flat and they died there. This was some case that occurred you know, 10, 15 years ago. So these, these, aren't, these sort of scenarios aren't totally unknown, but they're pretty rare because, uh, you know, normally things... Thick fires are small, confined to flat of origin. Yeah, but in, in our language, rare doesn't mean never. Uh, and the example of Grenfell is a, is a horrible uh, the, example. But, the, where... but then when we talk about, there is, you were talk, I mean, we went into this situation because you were talking about cues and things. Yep. Now, so the, so the, the key thing about Grenfell was, and other similar instances, was that the occupants then, there's no common alarm system. There's mm-hmm. no on-site fire safety management. Uh, there's no intention to have any kind of warning of occupants other than in the flat of origin by their own alarm going off. So there's no real plan B to get people out if things start to go pear-shaped un- unless or, or until there's some form of fire service intervention, perhaps, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I think, this is a, I think this is an issue that we really need to address. There should be... I remember giving lectures on this about the time of the World Trade Center after that and saying, well, you know, in a multi-story building, occupants deserve to be kept informed of a developing scenario. There should be some way of communicating with them and they should always have the ability to make their own decision about whether or not, with up-to-date information, they need to leave or wish to leave and they should be able to if they want to. And this kind of rather failed at Grenfell because although... When people were aware from a very early stage, because they, most people on most floors realized what the fire was going on, but obviously they didn't know what was happening below them. They didn't know if it was safe to go down the stair. They, they, they were in a very poor information situation. And I feel very, very sorry for the situation they found themselves in. But when it's interesting that, you know, you've got these kind of two or three cohorts. You've got a group of people who picked up on early cues decided to go, they went at an early stage before the lobbies and stair became smoke-logged, and, they all, and a large number of people got out without any great difficulty. The problem arose with the ones who stayed after about 1.20 to 1.30 a.m., who found their mm. lobby smoke-logged. And then they had this very difficult decision, do I go or do I stay? 
And having decided that they, they to stay the first time round, they had to keep revisiting that decision over the next hour or two as the conditions gradually changed. And to start with, of course, they were in a clear flat. There's no fire outside their flat. There's smoke in the lobby. It's much safer to stay where you are. But then, of course, the fire spread all the way around the round and then eventually came outside their flat, breaking into their flat from the outside. And so they had a different behavioral scenario to contend with. Now the stimulus to escape is much greater. And so they're more, more pressurized, if you like, to make the decision to try to go across that lobby and into the stair. So they had to keep revisiting that decision. Do I go or do I stay? Depending on the developing cues and information and conditions they were experiencing. That, that situation was changing continuously, you know? Do we, <clears throat> I'm, I'm trying to put the, the Grenfell situation within the pre-evacuation time concept. I'm contemplating yeah. in my head. So does the pre-evacuation, let's say, behavioral scenario approach, does it work in here or not? If you say that there were people who would take a decision to evacuate and then eventually return uh revisit that decision. Well, technically their pre-evacuation time, if we could like close it, it ended the, the moment they made the first decision. Everything that happened later was uh I I wonder like, okay, if I was engineering a building like that, yeah, not knowing the Grenfell example, would I be able, given the tools I have, to figure out that the scenario like this exists? Or this is a failure that uh, had to be overlooked by any engineer that would be doing. I, I, I'm contemplating that. I, I don't know the answer. Right. Well, I would say it's a question of we've got to break it down into our set diagram, right? Mm-hmm. So we've got the two stages. We've got the warning, time to warning, and then we've got the pre-travel time. Now, the people at Grenfell were getting these, they weren't getting any warnings. All they were getting was mixed cues mm-hmm. because there was no provision to give them a warning. There was one subgroup who did get a warning, and ironically, they were the ones in the flat six column, who were the, which was the first flats to be affected by the fire breaking into the kitchen on each floor over a 10-minute period going up the tower. And as I said in my Tokyo lecture, I was able to, we know exactly when the fire broke in at each floor level. And from my study of the witness statements and, and the evacuation times, cameras in the basement, you know, the ground floor and various other sources, I was able to establish that those people responded very quickly. They did get a warning, you know, because their smoke alarms went off. And when their smoke alarms went off, they they quickly got up and went to have a look in those kitchens and they saw the flames outside. They realized it was a serious okay, as, as in individual detection in their flats? Yes, because okay. they were the one, they were the only group who did get a uh, warning. A classic warning, you know, from their smoke detection system. All the rest were just accumulating cues, but they weren't, mm-hmm. they weren't giving any formal warning. Now, there were one or two floors where you could see a huge difference. I think one of them was, was the 13th floor, where somebody was coming home, having been out late, and he got into the elevator and he went up and he, he got to the fire floor at a very early stage and saw there was smoke realized there was a fire on the fourth floor and his family were on the 13th, I think it was. So he went into the stair, got out the lift, went through his thin smoke at that time in the lobby on the fourth floor, got into the stair, went up to the 13th floor, got his family, said, we've got to get out, we've got to get out. And then he went and knocked on the doors of all his neighbors on the six flats on that floor 
and strongly encouraged them to go, to get out. And so they all got a, a timely warning and then they all left very quickly and um, survived. And that, there were a number of other floors where something similar occurred, where, where one person reckon, realized at an early stage there was a dangerous situation developing and took the trouble to communicate with all the neighbors and get them all moving and uh, with a good outcome. Whereas other floors where that didn't happen, then you're more likely to get people remaining and until conditions became untenable. But the big failure to me was that there was no warning, evacuation warning given for an hour or so, a couple of hours, as we know. So it wasn't until conditions became extreme, uh, people were formally advised to evacuate. Yeah, I'm just going through the book, Show Me the Bodies by Pete Apps, and uh, it's absolutely horrible lecture for any fire safety engineer because the, 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 the description of the process of the fire itself and all, all the systematic failures that surrounded it is, is just mind blowing to us. One thing that is also very surprising and disturbing is the people got conflicting information. It was not simply yes, no decision. Should I evacuate? Should I not evacuate? They were receiving increasing amount of cues from the fire and from what's happening in the building. They see the amount of firefighters outside. They have their relatives calling them from other countries in the middle of the night, telling them how severe the situation is because they see it on the news. Yeah. And yet at the same time, they're being given an information through a phone, through the services that uh, you should stay at your uh, home. And even the moment that stay put policy is lifted for the building, which is somewhere 1.30 a.m. or something. It takes time until this knowledge propagates through the uh, people who are giving this information to the occupants. So, so Grenfell is a very, very, very complex case, uh, systematic problems that, that all came together in one building, in one horrible fire. Uh, but seeing your lecture from Japan, given the um, toxicology aspect of, of how people get incapacitated, incapacitated by smoke and, and all the stuff that we've discussed previously, that there was a large group of people who even got the information very late, but still would be able to do it, right? To, to make the, yeah. their 50 escape. Odd, yeah, 50 odd or so people who, and as I say, they were people who left their flat before conditions in their flats became extreme. So. Okay. Although some of them had been in their flats, depending on where they were around the tower, for some hours, an hour or so, the conditions that they, and there was smoke penetration of the flats from the lobbies throughout, but by opening windows away from the fire and by shutting interior doors and things like that, they were able to minimize their exposure for an hour or so. And I calculated that, uh, and from their descriptions, that from witness statements, so these are survivors, from their witness statements, of the condition they were in, they were alert, they were on the phone, they were lucid, they were making sensible decisions. They weren't, they weren't being overcome by carbon monoxide, et cetera, in the smoke. So they were in a good condition until the flames got outside their flat and started to break in through the windows of the room they were sheltering in. If they left immediately then or before that time, and if they were able to cross the lobby without, within, in a few seconds without inhaling a lot of smoke, then the conditions in the stair, although they were very hazardous, were such that it was possible, and they did, all descend right from the top floor to the, to the bottom floor and escape. So you could say that that stair performed reasonably well in terms of its intended purpose, which was to be a, 
a relatively well safe space for quite a long period of time. You know, mm -hmm. and it wasn't. It was a dangerous situation, but they did. They did survive. And the ones, the ones, there were some people who did collapse and die in the lobbies or the stair. And from my investigation, I'm convinced that they were all people who stayed too long in the in the flat after the flat was penetrated before they attempted to get across the lobby and into the stair. And some of them collapsed almost immediately in the lobby, right outside their room. Others almost immediately after entering the stair. All, all I can say for certain is they collapsed within a few steps of the landing in the stair. And therefore, I'm saying they must have, it must have happened very quickly after they entered the stair. So they didn't have time. I don't believe they had time to inhale much in the stair before they collapsed. Um, it's, it's, uh, I find it very difficult to talk about Grenfell. It's, uh, well, it, if, we, when if, you... we want, if we want to address this from a design perspective, or, yeah. or, I mean, questions I ask myself going forward is, is it reasonable to maintain things as we are so that we have this basic assumption, all you need to do is have fire-resistant construction and means of warning and escape from the individual flat. Should there be some means and some protocol for having some kind of management of an incident and communication system whereby you could communicate with all the individuals uh, collectively or individually, should conditions deteriorate and, and encourage them to evacuate? You know, I think we should. And I think we should have some kind of protocol for deciding when would you then operate that? Do you have to have a concierge on site all the time who would be responsible for that? Or should it be something that the fire service have access to? Uh, you wouldn't want everybody having access to it because it would it'd be easy then to have lots of false alarms in a block of flats, which you don't want. Maybe it's a keyed system that emergency services would have access. You know, there are various protocols we could adopt. Okay, so so thank you, David. Thank you very much. It's also always a pleasure uh, to talk uh, with you, even if we're talking about such difficult subjects as as case studies uh, and the real fires in which we observe different human behavior. I uh, hope there's a lesson to be learned by the engineers. Of course, we don't have answers to every fire, and uh, there will be fires that will come to our surprise. But also, you know, learning from those incidents is, is the best thing we can do now to improve our engineering for the future. Or perhaps you have a closing uh, message or lesson to engineers that comes up of this, uh, this case studies and, and these tragical fires we've just uh, discussed. As a general thought, well, yeah, I think I think from a design perspective, you know, for engineers, it's please be aware that there are these different stages in the in the evacuation response, and that we really do need to address each one of those terms in the RSET equation, if you like, to to have a a good design perspective. We can do performance based calculations, but be aware, of course, that some of these parameters where we have limited limits of our knowledge. But I think we do have enough understanding now to improve our designs, particularly in, in improve our management uh, protocols for these kind of um, mm. situations and think about how we incorporate the behavior response of the management into the overall design process and how we might improve the training and protocols for, for fire safety management as globally during incidents.
I think that's going to be very important going on. This is this pre-warning issue that we were talking about. But I think, I think uh, you know, we are, I mean, historically, what we did was work with do, do travel time calculations. And still, mm-hmm. a lot of design is based solely on the travel and flow. I think we need to be really aware of the importance of these earlier behavioral phenomena and how big an effect they can have on the outcome of, of different types of scenario. And I think I'll leave it with that comment. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's it. If you noted that the interview ended a little abruptly, it's not because I had to stop David. It's because we kept going for another hour and recorded one more podcast episode. I'm not sure if it's going to get published next week. It's uh, definitely needs some work and perhaps I will use up in different material, but there is much more stuff recorded with David going deeper into the Grenfell uh, case study, but also touching the other case studies mentioned in the podcast, the retirement house, the Mont Blanc tunnel fire, very interesting discussion. And I will definitely share that up with, uh, with you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. It started with a very basic explanation of what the evacuation time is and how we define the timeline in the fires and ended up with a very brutal case study in which this approach was definitely not enough. And all the things that made it not being enough. I purposefully made it like this. There is a lot of controversy for ACID, RCID approach in the fire science. And I'm also, I also have been criticizing this approach in, in the past. And I still am for some of the projects. It doesn't make sense to, to do it like this. For most of them, it, it does. I hope you can make out of this episode some basic understanding of what things take place in the evacuation process, what things influence the evacuation process, what are the important things that happen during the evacuation process. And based on that, improve your fire safety engineering. That's the purpose of the Fundamentals of Fire Science series. I hope it was interesting to you to hear all of this from the person who pretty much defined all of this. Uh, It was immense pressure for me to have David Purser once again in the show. And I promise to bring David uh, again to you because, uh, yeah, this is some knowledge we, we really need to get through the fire science community. And while we're at it, the community, there is a community webpage of the fire science show. If you go to community.firescienceshow.com, you will enter the fire science show community where you can meet other people like you, fans of the podcast, uh, enthusiasts of fire science. Fire safety engineers by craft, people who simply make their living out of making buildings and stuff fire safe and love to talk about it. And if we can make a great community out there, it will be even better for 2024 to share our knowledge experiences and thoughts with each other. And I highly encourage you to join the community. Once again, you can find it at community.firescienceshow.com. See you there and see you here again on next Wednesday. Thank you. Bye. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.